Some of you who are newer, and perhaps some of the uh, people who have been here for a while, may wonder, who leads this church? (laughs) Who's in charge here? Well, the short answer, and the best answer, and I hope it's the correct answer, is the Lord, Jesus. He's to be the head of the church. That's God's design. And I encourage you, especially this week, but always, to be praying that the Lord would be the head of this church. And pray specifically for the elders of this church. Because they are the ones, the elder board, are the ones who are seeking the mind of Christ. And that's their primary job, is to find the mind of Christ for this body. And this coming weekend, or this week, they are going away as a group to plan and pray and determine what God's will is for coal as we continue to move ahead into this next year. So please be praying for them in this coming week especially, but, uh, but year-round. Because it's a, it's a great privilege, but it's a huge responsibility to be leading this church. Now, some of you may be coming from a lot of different backgrounds, uh, different kinds of church leadership. But today we're going to be looking specifically at 1 Timothy 3 to see how Paul directed Timothy in terms of the leadership of the church in Ephesus there. And I want to say this is critically important. You see, the leadership of a church is the key to the vitality and the purity of a church. The leadership, human leadership, seeking the Lord, but the leadership of the church is the key to the vitality, the life and the purity of a body. Therefore, it's important that leaders be the leaders that God has called them to be. Not something else, but specifically according to His plan. Right now, there's a real crisis in leadership in this country as a whole, as I'm sure you know if you read the paper daily. Uh, But in the church as a whole, in America as well, there's a real crisis in terms of leadership. There's a real need for stronger leadership, true biblical leadership. So we want to look at that together in 1 Timothy 3 this morning. When Paul wrote to Timothy... He was writing to the church in Ephesus that, as we, as you read through the book of 1 Timothy, you see it was having a lot of problems. There were a number of things attacking it. From outside was the worldliness. There was an Artemis cult there that was uh, causing some influence on the church. And Chris preached last week about how there was a mix-up in terms of women's roles and men's roles. And the men were weak and uninvolved, backing away. Um, so there was attack from the worldliness, but there was also attack from within the church in Ephesus. False teachers were coming in and teaching all kinds of doctrines that were untrue and causing problems in the church. So in chapter 3, Paul directs Timothy of what an elder needs to be so that he could have a strong team of leadership there in place. We will be looking at three aspects uh, today of eldership. One is the work of an elder, what they're to do. Secondly, the qualifications of an elder. How do you know who to choose? Who should be an elder? And then thirdly, we'll look at the purpose of an elder, just briefly. Uh, But as we do so, we'll be looking at qualifications and church leadership, and I hope you learn a lot about church leadership today. But 
all these qualifications are qualifications for any of us. So don't listen for them, but listen for yourself. Because God wants you to grow as a man and a woman of God as well, as the elders are to be. So if you're not there already, turn with me to 1 Timothy 3. And he begins the chapter like this. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Notice the emphasis is on the work that he desires to do. He's not saying you should thirst and desire for uh, a position so you can be important in the church. But he's saying what you're really desiring is responsibility, a position of work. And if anyone desires that, that's a fine work to desire. Well, what is this work? He uses the word overseer here, one who oversees. This is the uh, word episcope, where we get episcopalian, uh, oversight, one who does oversight, sometimes translated bishop. But it really is just an overseer, one who watches the flock closely, observes, examines them to see what their needs are so that he can minister to those needs in the body of Christ. So the first work of an overseer or an elder, a church leader, is to watch closely, to oversee, to be able to build up the body, to help them grow. So to me, that really speaks of intimate involvement in the body. If elders are off in meetings all the time and making decisions, then I think they're kind of missing the point of what an elder or an overseer is to be. He's to be someone who's watching closely the flock and involved in the, with their lives. Another word that's used, not here but elsewhere, a number of places, Acts 20, if you want to look there sometime, 1 Peter 5, Titus 1, where it talks about church leadership, is the word shepherd, pastor. You see, every elder is to be shepherding. And again, that's a beautiful picture, a shepherd of one who is involved with the flock, keeping, uh, spending time with them, leading them to green pastures, feeding them, caring for their wounds, loving them. Again, it speaks of an intimate involvement in their lives. So an elder, a church leader is to be an overseer, do overseeing, do shepherding. And then thirdly, a word that's used in a couple of places um, here in Timothy is the word leading. Sometimes it's translated manage, but I don't like the word manage because the word really speaks more of someone who stands before the people and leads them in the direction that God wants them to go. Again, it speaks of involvement in their lives. It speaks of someone who really cares for them intimately. I love the way Paul puts it in Acts 20. When he gathers the church, the elders of Ephesus, the same elders that he's writing to here, and he talks to them about his ministry and he says, I'll never see you again. These are the things I want you to remember about my ministry. And one of the things he says is, I went from house to house caring for you teaching you, exhorting you, shedding tears from house to house because I loved you and cared for you. That is a picture of an elder. That is a picture of a true church leader, someone intimately involved, caring for their flock, involved with them. Church leaders lead their leaders by really finding the mind of Christ. 
You see, the main responsibility, as I began with, and I want to emphasize it again, of an elder is to seek the Lord's mind so he can lead the flock. It's not to sit and kind of share all their opinions and sort of make decisions based on what they think. They're to be men of prayer, men who honestly seek the Lord and say, Lord, what is your will for this body, for this flock? Church leaders lead by following the lead of Jesus. That's most important. So that's what elders are to do. That's what church leaders are to do. Oversee, shepherd, and lead. There's another word that's used to describe elders, and it is the word elder. (laughs) And the word elder means an older person, but it really speaks of someone of maturity. See, what's important about the qualifications of an elder is that they have to be someone who is mature, godly. And that's interesting because, see, in the world, in a business, they're not going to look at how godly a person is or necessarily how much integrity they have necessarily. That's not probably going to be first on their list when they're choosing leaders for a business, are they? They will be more concerned about how effective he is, how well he can get the job done, how well he can make sure that people uh, do what he says, get them motivated. Get them doing what they need to be doing for the business. But you know what? God never focuses on that for the church. In fact, Jesus told the disciples, the Gentiles lord it over one another, but it shall not be so among you. See, the church is different. We have a different kind of leadership. What's most important, qualification for an elder that oversees all the rest, is godliness, maturity, That's why Paul uses the word elder to describe who they are. Because you may be a great businessman, but a lousy elder. (laughs) You may be great at motivating people, but terrible at really leading and shepherding the flock. That's not what God's looking for. He's looking for godly men and women to be the leaders of a church. He talks first about elders, and then he goes on to deacons. I want to focus on the eldership because they are are the main leaders of a church. So uh, he goes on in verse 2 then to describe the qualifications of an elder. An overseer then, elder overseer, these are used interchangeably, must be, first of all, above reproach. This to me summarizes all the rest. You see, someone who is above reproach is someone who has no major character flaw in their lives. There's nothing that's worthy of criticism that you could look at their life and say, wow, you know, he's a pretty good guy, but this area he really has a problem in. Now, it's true, all these areas that we will be looking at, none of us are perfect. None of us fulfill them perfectly, and none of the elders do. I guarantee it. I know all of them. (laughs) But to be an elder, they need to be people who show evidence of every one of these characteristics, and they're growing to be more and more godly in all of these areas. So the first one, again, is above reproach, and the idea here is nothing major in his life that you could criticize and point a finger at and say, boy, he's blowing it here. Secondly, Paul mentions the husband of one wife. This one describes... uh, There's a lot of differences of opinion about this, but most evangelical, Christian, biblical commentators see this as 
a one-woman man, someone who has the characteristic of being faithful in his sexual relationships, in particular if he's married with his wife. He's faithful to her. He is not unfaithful in action or in his mind. And we all struggle with temptation. It doesn't mean you never struggle, but it means that that is under control and you're submitting it to the Lordship of Christ so that he's a faithful man to his wife. I know a man who was being considered for as an elder, and as we began to talk about his relationships at his work and in the community, it became obvious that women felt uncomfortable around him. He was somewhat flirtatious, and there was something about the way he related to other women that disqualified him as an elder. He needs to be pure in that area. Faithful to, to his wife in deed and in thought. Why does Paul mention this first, after summarizing it with above reproach? I think he mentions it first because this is the primary area that if you are in church leadership, Satan will attack you in. The sexual area. And we all know that. I mean, if you read the news and you, and you follow eight church leaders, either pastors or elders, you know that Satan is bound to attack that area because our sexuality is such a powerful part of us that can easily get off whack if it's not under the control of the Lordship of Christ. So it's vitally important that elders be pure in this area. I know an elder who had been functioning for an, as an elder for a number of years. Then he began to... Uh, borrow money from other people in the body, other pastors, elders, and he wasn't paying it back, and they began to pursue his life, and they realized that he had been living a double life for eight years, having a mistress on the side and trying to support her. And over time, he drained him financially, and he began to get into trouble. Now, praise God, God has worked in that, and he's repented and and changed and gotten beyond that. But it's so easy to be attacked in that area, and elders will. Church leaders will. That's why it's first. There is a question here. Um, can women be elders? That's a huge question. We could spend the whole time on that. But let me just say that I believe that from this, uh, that only men are to be elders. And that's the consensus of the board of elders here at Cole, is that only men are to be elders. Partly because uh, to be a husband of one wife, he has to be a male, obviously. Um, but further on, he goes on to talk about deacons. And when he talks about deacons, he has a section for either male or female deacons. And then he has a section to female deacons and then a section to men deacons. So he divides them up, clearly stating that either men or women can be on a deacon board, can be deacons. But he doesn't do that with elders. So it's clear to me that only men can be elders. And someone else has asked, can single men be elders? This says a husband of one wife. Well, I don't think, because it's really talking about a character quality, I don't think this verse disqualifies a single man necessarily. But I do think it may be harder to tell how he's doing in his sexual relationships for a single man. And secondly, it goes on later to talk about how... uh, an elder needs to be a good manager of his home. That's a primary testing ground for an elder to see if he should be a church leader or not. Well, a single man doesn't have a wife and children that he's seeking to lead and love, so you can't look as easily and see if he's really qualified or not. So it's just more difficult. 
for a single person, single man to be an elder, I believe. Well, then uh, Paul goes on to write about some other characteristics. I want to lump the next three together, temperate, prudent, and respectable. These three combined really speak of a balanced life. You see, someone to be qualified as an elder needs to be someone who is not impulsive, is not going overboard in any one particular direction, but there's a balance about his life. And there's a sense about his life that when he sees the truth, he's able, he's able to see it and he's able to follow through on it and stick with it even when life is chaotic. The picture I get in my mind is in the midst of a storm and you're on a ship and the waves are crashing and it's dark and, and it's hard to tell where you're going and, and the tendency is to panic, your emotions are churned up and life gets that way and eldering can get that way. But someone who has this qualification keeps their eye on the compass He knows which way he's going. He's able to keep his eye on the Lord and where the church needs to go. And even in the midst of turmoil, stick with it. That's what he's talking about here. Someone who's temperate. Someone who's prudent. Someone who sees the truth and sticks with it, even when their emotions and circumstances are going crazy. That's important for elders to help steer the ship and follow the Lord and make sure we're going where we need to go. Next... Paul uses the word hospitable, and I want to combine this with a characteristic in verse 3, the end of verse 3, where he says, free from the love of money. Being hospitable, or a lover of strangers, and free from the love of money, I combine because they're both talking about how do you handle your resources? How do you handle your money? How do you handle your home and possessions, the things you have? And an elder needs to be one who is especially generous in how he uses his things. He's not consumed with hoarding money and getting money and you don't see him talking about it all the time and you don't see him as an elder making all his decisions based on, well, we can't do that because we don't have the money, etc., etc. Now, he's a good steward, yes. But he needs to be someone who's seeking to use his resources for the good of others, seeking to be generous with all that he has. That's the idea of hospitable. That's the idea of free from the love of money. Using what he has to build God's kingdom. Next he says, I want to skip over, able to teach. We'll come back to that. Verse 3, not addicted to wine. The idea of uh, being addicted to wine is a drunkard. But see, wine is something we use, don't we, to avoid pain? Wine is something that uh, when we're when life is difficult and we just can't seem to handle it, we're looking for an escape. So we might use wine to do that. Makes us feel better for a little while. Doesn't solve anything, obviously. Well, I think that's really what he's getting at here. An elder must not have an addictive personality. He must not be someone who is, when life's hard and he's full of pain, he finds a way to escape, either through uh, wine, drugs, um, other things that we can use to try to escape. Is he a workaholic? Does he escape from struggle by working more and more and more? You see, I think that would disqualify him based on this. Is he a sportsaholic? <laughs> is he a... I could be treading on on uh, shaky ground here. Is he a hunting-aholic? <laughs> is he a fishing-aholic? Now, we... 
are free in the Lord and elders are to enjoy what God's given us and enjoy life and enjoy what is created and so forth. But he must not be addicted in a way that that's, he's consumed with that to escape struggle, escape difficulty. He needs to be able to face the struggles of life and stay in there, persevere, and not run to something to escape to. I believe that's what he's talking about when he says not addicted to wine. Then he uses three words that I want to combine again. Not pugnacious. Do you love that word? Pugnacious. <laughs> really means a bully, a fighter. Not pugnacious, but gentle, uncontentious. Those three words together. Picture that an elder needs to be someone who's not a fighter, who's going to go into an elders meeting and demand, boy, I don't know what it's going to take, but I'm going to make sure my way comes through. I'm going to make sure I get my way because I know I'm right and I'm going to fight for it. But rather, an elder needs to be someone who comes in and can be a man of strong conviction. Shouldn't be an elder if he's not. But someone who's willing to listen and work it through and be gentle and be changed, be yielding, be undemanding, in how he approaches issues. See, an elder must be undemanding, unyielding. He must have a gentle, gentle spirit, a good listener. I grew up in a church in Oregon that, uh, or I came to Christ in high school and went to a church in Oregon that was a split off another church. And in this, uh, uh, while I was in college, I went there when I was in high school, and then when I was gone away to college, the pastor at the time, I just heard this story this fall, was uh, was there, um, and he, some of the people had gotten together and said, hey, we have two churches in this little community, let's join back together. Let's have some healing here. And the pastor said, uh, well, okay, if you want to have a meeting. But as he told the story, he said, I had no hope at all that the churches would get together. I knew elders on both sides that were entrenched and did not want to get together. He said, we had a meeting, we talked about it, and I wasn't confident at all that we could bring this kind of healing. That's rare for two churches that split to come back together. But he said, I was sitting in this meeting, and one elder from one church got up and one from the other church... And they went outside, and they were talking. He said, I looked out there, and I saw them hugging. And he said, I knew at that point that God could bring a healing. That year, these two churches that had split joined back together. And now it's got a strong witness in this little community in Oregon. See, that's kind of the spirit of what an elder must have, a yielding spirit. And I think for the first time that those elder boards began to experience that, a yieldedness, a forgiveness, a gentleness that brings healing, not division. Key, that, that is a, a key characteristic of an elder. Now in verses 4 and 5, Paul writes this to Timothy. He must be one who manages his own household well keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? In other words, to be an elder, he must be someone who leads his home well. I don't really like the word manage. I think the word, a better word here is lead. 
It's a word of standing before people, standing before his family, and leading them where they need to go, being an example to them of where they need to go. Guiding them where they need to go. Again, it speaks of involvement with them. It's not an administrative position at all, but it's a leader in the home, spiritual leader, giving direction, leading them towards the Lord. And he says that that's what an elder must be. And he must have submissive and respectful children. Now, that's a tough one because we all have children who resist us and, and rebel at times. And, and also, does that, does that mean that, that the kids never can rebel if someone's going to be an elder? Well, as far as major rebellion, I'd say yes. You see, it's a high standard that elders have that they must live up to. And I don't think it's a put-down to people whose children rebel because many of us will experience that, and it doesn't necessarily mean we're bad parents. But it may mean at that point that our time should not be put into directing the church, but it should be put into loving your family and dealing with the issues there. And that being an elder would be a distraction for you at that point. So I think that's critical that the children be, as the words are, submissive and respectful. doesn't mean, again, they don't disobey, because all children do. But overall, that's their attitude. And that they, he leads his wife, he leads his family in a loving, good way. I think this is so important because the home is the place where a man's leadership is truly tested. A man can fake it pretty well at work. You know, we're there. We can kind of pull off the job and and fake it there. And we can even fake it pretty well in the church. We can show up for meetings and act pretty spiritual and, and all. But it's really tough to fake it at home. Your wife and children know you. <laughs> and so one of the most important things in choosing an elder and deciding if someone fits is to look in their home. And see how they lead. Are they a spiritual leader? Are they directing their family well? And this is an encouragement for all of us as men. Are we directing our families well? Are our children submissive? Are they respectful towards us and towards others? It's a high standard. Now you might say, okay, where's the age of accountability here? Where, you know, is there a point at which if kids rebel, then this doesn't apply to them anymore? I don't know. Now, this has been debated for ages, so it's hard to say. I would tend to think, as long as their children are in the home, that they ought to fit the category to be elders. My opinion. Um, okay, the next uh, characteristic he gives is in verse 6. And not a new convert, lest he become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. Not a new convert. He needs to have walked with the Lord. He needs some time under his belt of getting to know the Lord and depend on Him. Sometimes new converts are ones you'd want to put in positions of leadership. Don't do it. It's deadly. In any ministry, really. But especially as as elders. Because, see, a new convert is enthusiastic and excited and they have all kinds of energy, but they haven't learned to depend on the Lord. It doesn't mean they can't serve. Everybody's to serve in all kinds of ways. But it means that they are not to be in a position of leadership. And see, Paul had learned this the hard way. 
himself. Remember what happened when Paul was converted on the road to Damascus? He went to Damascus, was all excited, and he began preaching right away to the Jews in Damascus. And what did the Christians do there? Let him down in a basket down the wall so he could escape. They sent him out of town. He went to Jerusalem, started preaching to all the Jews there. And it says there was turmoil and controversy there. And it's a very interesting two verses that come together. It says, the apostles sent Paul to Tarsus. Paul went off to Tarsus. And the church in Jerusalem enjoyed a time of great prosperity and peace. (laughs) Interesting. You see, Paul had a heart for the Lord, and he was enthusiastic, and he was a wonderful guy. But he hadn't learned to walk with the Lord. He hadn't been broken yet and learned what it means to trust and depend on him instead of his own resources, which makes you susceptible to to Satan. Fourteen years later, Barnabas goes and gets Paul up in Tarsus, brings him back, and they begin ministering. And now he has an effective ministry. Fourteen years later. So not a new convert. It's important. Then he says, must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he may not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Must have a good reputation with outsiders. I think really what he's saying here is he must be a person of integrity. You see, again, like your family, in your family, uh, it's hard to fake it. You can fake it at work, you can fake it at church, but it's hard to fake it with your family. Sometimes it's hard to fake it, too, with outsiders. And it's a good question to ask. What is this person's reputation with people outside? Is he a person of integrity so no matter where he is, whatever sphere of life, he exhibits godly character? He's a person of integrity that non-Christians look at and, and respect. They may not agree with him. Of course they won't. But they respect him. He has a good reputation. I know, a, I know a, an elder who, again, was disqualified, I believe, as an elder because when he came to town, uh, the church loved him, etc. But he, he made some business dealings and then he backed out on them in the community. And my father, who... Uh, as a non-Christian businessman in community, told me one day, he said, I don't trust the guy. I wouldn't have anything to do with him because he backed out on these dealings. See, I think that disqualified him. Good man disqualified him as as a church leader because he didn't have a good reputation in the community. So again, that's an important part of, uh, of an elder's qualifications. So first, an elder must desire to take on the responsibility. Not everybody does. Secondly, an elder must be, or a church leader must be a person of maturity. All these qualifications we've looked at. And thirdly, I skipped over this, but he must be apt to teach, able to teach. He must be a person who can know the word well enough to communicate it to others. I don't believe this is talking about specifically the gift of teaching. Some elders should have that says later in 1 Timothy that uh, uh, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Not everyone is going to work hard at preaching and teaching as an elder, but all should be able to communicate the word to people, either in small groups at least, or one-on-one. They must know the word well enough. So those are the qualifications of an elder. 
See, an elder is to guard the truth. To do that, he must know it and be able to communicate it to others on some level. Now Paul goes on to deacons, and we aren't going to have uh, time to really focus on it, but let me point out a couple of things about deacons in verses 8 through 13. What's the purpose of, of a board of deacons? The word for deacon just means, it's just servant. It's the word servant. And as I understand it, deacons were those like in Acts 6, though those aren't officially called deacons. I think they're the prototype where uh, the Hellenistic Jews, you remember, were complaining because they weren't being fed in the distribution of food and money and all. And so the apostles said, well, we need to focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. So appoint seven godly men to handle this ministry, to serve in this ministry. And that's what a deacon is to do. Ultimately, the purpose of a deacon board is to free up the elders so they can shepherd, so they can teach, so they can be eldering, overseeing the body, so they don't have to handle the distribution of food and money and all the little worldly details that are part of running an institution. So that's the purpose, I believe, of of deacons. The qualifications, as you read through them, and I encourage you to do so, are the same as elders, essentially. The only thing that really stands out as different is they don't have to be apt to teach. They don't have to have that, but they have to hold on to the word and the faith that has been passed on to us. But they don't necessarily have to be able to communicate it. And as I said, I believe that um, women, in verse 11 it says, women must likewise be dignified, etc., etc. I believe it's talking about women deacons. So on a deacon board, you can have men and women deacons as well who are to serve and free the elders to fulfill their ministry. Let me just make a comment at this point. Cole does not have a board of deacons. You may know that. You may be aware of that. Um, I don't think it's required that every church have a board of deacons. I think they're there to free the elders, so it can be a very good thing. But Cole has chosen to the, up to this point, and they've talked a lot about it, as I understand um, the elders have, They've chosen not to have an official board of deacons because they want us to encourage us to see ourselves as all servants. You know, there could be the temptation with a board of deacons to think, they're the ones who serve, so I don't have to. But the point is, we're all servants in the body of Christ. We all are. And we're all to be involved in ministry, serving and seeking to free the elders up to shepherd us. Then Paul concludes, Concludes in verses 14 and 15, he says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write, so you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. I think in this verse, Paul really gives us the purpose of church leaders. It's to see that the church is what it's supposed to be, what God created it to be in the very beginning. It's to be, first of all, God's house. And what's the picture Paul's using here of a house, God's house? I think it's to be a place where relationships with God and with one another can flourish. And to the elders here, I encourage you to think on those terms. That's your responsibility, to make sure that coal is a place where relationships with God and with one another in the body can flourish. That's what a house is place of relationships. Secondly, he uses the picture of God's 
church, the church of the living God. And I think the purpose of elders is to make sure the church is a place where God is truly alive. Where people can walk into a gathering of the saints and say, God's here. He's alive. There's a Lord of heaven and earth, and he's active here. He's leading this church. He's guiding, and he's involved, and I sense his working in this body. Second purpose of an elder. And the third one is where he says, this is the pillar and support of the truth. The church is the pillar and support. This is the picture of a temple, pillars and supports. It's to be a place where the truth dwells. Temple is where God dwells, where God dwells, where the truth dwells. You see, out there in the world, there's false teaching and people don't see the truth at all, but the church ought to be a place where the truth is taught and fostered and people hear it and they come to have their thinking changed, to be transformed by the truth. So the elders, the third purpose is to make sure that this is where the truth dwells. This is God's temple. Chapter ends with this, a hymn, really, an early hymn, Christian hymn, where Paul writes, And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. He's just been describing the godliness of the elders. Now he says, great is the mystery of godliness. And what does he describe? Jesus. He describes Jesus and all that he did in coming, dying for us, being taken up into glory. You see, the major characteristic of an elder or any church leader or any one of us is how do we depend on the Lord? Is he real in our lives? Is there an intimate walk with him that causes his life to be expressed in us? He died for us so he could live in us and through us. So let that be what you aspire to more than anything. is to know him in a way, an intimate way, where his life begins to be lived out through you. And as we approach the communion table now together, let's really worship him for what he has done. He's died that we might live And he's died that he might live in us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the elders you've given us here at Cole that seek your mind, that seek to lead us and shepherd us and cause us to know you better, that we might depend on you. Lord, I pray for them as they go away this coming week that you would guide them, that you would be in the midst of them, that they would hear your voice and, uh, and that you would guide their fellowship to be good and right and wonderful, that we might benefit from it. And Lord, we thank you for the cross through which we're given life, we're given forgiveness, we're given all that we need. May we worship you now around the table you prepared. In Jesus' name we pray it. Amen.